What's going on, everyone? It's Mitch from RespectMyRegion.com coming back with another episode of the North American Weed Tour podcast. We are looking at the best in legal cannabis across the map. Today, joined by a very special guest, Claudio Miranda, founder, CEO of Guild Extracts. How are you doing today, Claudio? I'm doing great, man. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Yeah, I'm excited. I know we, we talked a while ago, a couple months back uh, and got this scheduled out kind of far in advance. But I, I told you right before I pulled up some notes from our from our phone call and I'm excited for this conversation today. I think there's some cool topics and I, and I really liked when we were just rapping on the phone a while back. But before we get into any of that, I start every guest off with um, just asking and understanding kind of their relationship with cannabis, like your origin story with the plant, whether that's personal, professional or both. You know, when did you and cannabis start, uh, you know, seeing one another, if you will? Yeah, no, definitely. It's just funny because for me, it kind of shows my age a little bit. But I actually got starting cannabis in 1985. Um, at the time, I was, uh, you know, I was a teenager and uh, I was living in the L.A. area, L.A. Orange County area and just got involved, you know, as a, just a cannabis user at that time. And uh you know, quickly got into, uh, you know, other sides of it. Um, and for about a decade, I was involved in, um, in kind of the cannabis culture and working with the plant. Um, and eventually I moved out of LA and uh, came up to the Bay Area where I live now. And then went, up, uh, you know, went to school at UC Berkeley. And while I was going to Berkeley, I, I learned to cultivate and kind of uh, hone in my cultivation skills and, and pretty much paid my way through college, uh, through, through cultivation. That was, that was back in the day when you can sell a good pound of flour for $6,000. And so, <laughs> so certainly missed those days. That's around the mid nineties. And then after graduating from college, I got into tech, um, you know, being here in the Silicon Valley and really got out of cannabis for about 15 years. So like a 15 year hiatus. And then around 2013, uh, 14 started to relook at cannabis. Once I felt that the, the legality of it and how it was really maturing, I thought it was a good time to re-enter the market after that 15 year gap got into the retail side of it and was involved in a dispensary management group that was born out of elemental wellness in San Jose and kind of did a few dispensaries. Um, and then just shortly thereafter, um, me and a few business partners started Guild, um, the Guild family of brands. And at the time it was kind of a vertically integrated family of brands. We really touched every kind of plant touching license um, in the industry from uh, from kind of nursery and cultivation through manufacturing, distribution, retail, both brick and mortar and delivery. And that's part of the origin story for uh, for Guild is that started with that kind of broad range of operating companies and, and kind of the licenses that we held. Um, and that over a period of time um, ended up where I am today, more focused on Guild extracts and happy to fill in the gap there in the Guild family. But but that's kind of the, the long story short no I, I love that and it, and it's it's a nice journey that you were so in like intimately involved with cannabis and then stepped away and went you know i i, I found myself hating to use this the traditional route which i usually describe <laughs> any profession that's not weed is the traditional route in my vocabulary which i i recently became cognizant of that bothers me but anyways i digress um but you know shifting from cannabis to other industries and then coming back when it was legal what was it like to obviously have such a passion and be involved in cannabis for so long and i'm assuming obviously stepping away to build a more sustainable career that didn't uh involve committing felonies on a daily basis um yeah. but then all of a sudden cannabis becoming a viable career cho choice like what what was that like kind of at that point to be like 
I can now get back into something that you clearly had quite a bit of experience and passion for. Yeah, no, look, I mean, throughout that entire kind of period of time, you know, cannabis, uh, I've always been very steeped in cannabis culture. You know, one detail I kind of glossed over is, you know, in my late teens, I got into the, into the Grateful Dead community and I ended up kind of traveling nationwide on Grateful Dead tour, as it's kind of known. And there was a lot of movement of flower uh, from West to East Coast at that time, going through all those kind of markets that the Grateful Dead toured through. And upon kind of getting out of that scene, I did that for several years. Um, but I mentioned that because a lot of my brothers and sisters that I did that with, I'm still friends with, a lot of those people around that time, we're talking late 80s to early 90s, moved on to the Emerald Triangle to the, uh, and, and who are now some of the kind of the leading legacy growers in Mendocino, Humboldt, et cetera. And so throughout all that period of time, I was still in touch with a lot of these folks. I was still going to, you know, concerts and very much, you know, cannabis was very much involved in my life culturally. I just got out of it from a business perspective. And throughout that whole period of time, you know, that that 15 year hiatus, I really got into the natural product sector, even though I mentioned technology, um, I sold um, organic and natural products via e-commerce. So that was like really the technology piece. Um, but I always in kind of my heart wanted to get back into cannabis. For me, it was more so a thing like, look, I, I went as far as to kind of graduate from a good university. And now I, you know, now I should do something with that education and that investment. So let's, let's do it in a way that I don't like you say risk getting a felony and going to jail. Um, so, but that whole time though, I was like, wow, I would really love to apply these skills that I'm learning in business, uh, and translate that over to cannabis. And certainly then, you know, so I always kind of was feeling out the market and seeing when is it a safe time to kind of reorbit and look at you know legal cannabis and it's around that time frame that i mentioned 2013 14 that it felt like the right time but it, but you know it was weird and you'll talk to a lot of people that are crossovers from traditional businesses other industries into cannabis that there's sometimes some trepidation right like for a long time i didn't want to update my linkedin and I didn't want to kind of come out of the closet, so to speak, for fear that in the business community and the network that I developed in Silicon Valley with like VCs, for example, and in the tech world, it was still, you know, stigmatized. And I felt that if I just came out of the closet, so to speak, and said, I'm in cannabis, how is that going to be viewed? So it was done with some trepidation. And I think through the passing kind of months and years that ensued, I felt more and more comfortable once it got more kind of widespread adoption, um, decided finally, all right, I'm just kind of ripping the bandaid and letting the world know that I'm back in cannabis, at least for my network world. Um, but I think it ultimately served me really well, like going into more formal uh, business, because obviously we know in cannabis, even though there's, you know, you have to have strong business skills and business acumen, it's of a very different kind. It employs more like street smarts and really knowing how to, you know, work with um, the business world in a way that's different than formal business and the skills you develop in formal business practices. And I think that's kind of just served me well, like coming back into cannabis, as you know, you have this dichotomy of like the roots and the suits, and you're either kind of this corporate person that is not originally from cannabis or you're this person person that is steeped in cannabis, like I had a foot in each camp and was able to straddle that line by bringing the best of both worlds to the table. Uh, I, I guarantee that's probably one, a big attribution to your guys' success. Uh, you know, I think in this industry, that that bridge between the mm -hmm. two, it's something that common comes up, commonly comes up on this show of just an importance. You know, there's obviously tension on both sides from the business world to 
you know, like you said, the, the roots, the suits, like there's a little bit of tension on, on each side, but anyone that can be a conduit or, or businesses that can be a conduit are, are usually successful. Um, but I want to take it back a little bit. Like you said, when you first getting into the market, you know, of, of kind of attacking it from all, all different angles um, and, and not, I'm assuming at that point, obviously it wasn't just extracts. At what, at what point did extracts or extraction kind of pop up as, you know, hey, this is something we want to start pursuing. And then at what point was it like, not just longer pursuing and we're going all in on, on this component. Yep. Yep. So this gets into a little bit of that founding story of Guild. Um, at the time, you know, started a company with, with several business partners, Guild Enterprises, and, and each partner brought in a different skill set. My main skill set was kind of more of that formal business and particularly in marketing and branding skill set. But I also had a lot of familiarity with, uh, with, with retail. And so at the time I was, as I mentioned, working with a retail management group. Um, one of my business partners was the founder of Elemental Wellness and we together started a few dispensaries. So when I met the, what became to be the founders of Guild, um, Couple of those founders came from more of the cultivation and the genetic side. Um, one of the founders came from Extracts, and that and that individual is my main business partner at Guild Extracts, Brad Robertson. Um, everything you see that's kind of Guild Extracts, all the technology we've developed, some patents that we've developed, is all the brainchild of of really Brad. He's the lead extractor. He's the artisan. Um, he's the one that really drove the, the extraction division, for lack of a better word, of the Guild family. Um, and so, um, so at that time, then we were running a few different operating companies across that vertical supply chain. But over the, and this again was around 2014, 15, when all this was forming. But over that course of time, going into 15, 16, 17, 18, you know, what we found on a regulatory level, uh, for those that remember, the regulatory framework in California at first was leaning toward breaking up vertical integration. So our legal counsel started to inform us that, look, it looks like you're not going to be able to do this vertically integrated play in California in the way that you guys have architected. So you might want to start looking at breaking that up. Similarly, we had just some um, just some uh, some differences with some you know some of our different business partners across the different operating companies that wanted to focus more, let's say, on cultivation or focus more on retail and not get involved in the other business units. So a few driving reasons made us finally conclude: all right, let's break up this vertical set. And um, and some of those companies, the retails got spun off into different brands. The uh, the cultivation got spun off into kind of different brand. Um, but ultimately, Guild Extracts is the one that really stayed focused on on continuing with the Guild brand name. So a lot of the other operating companies that I was involved in, some of which were under the Guild umbrella, some of which were not. Um, a lot of those companies continue to this day, just with different stakeholders under different brands. But under Guild, really that's where I personally doubled down and my business partner Brad did the same. Um, and part of the reasons for that is we felt that that's where we had the most traction. Um, for those familiar with the Guild Extracts brand and its legacy, you know, I think that's where we had the most unique kind of uh, story and value that we we're contributing to the industry in terms of we were first to market to really bring some really innovative concentrates on the hydrocarbon side. Um, along with other extractors, we were the first to market to bring things that are now commonplace, things like shatter, live resin, butter, you know, all those different types of products you now find in every dispensary shelf. We were among the first groups of people to really commercialize and popularize those products in the California market. I love that because I mean, you know, my, my first experiences mm. with extracts were some very ugly looking, not 
doesn't look like anything that anyone would touch. Even the low end consumer would probably not touch what, what we're having at the start. Um, and so I, I definitely rem fondly remember those days when you started, you know, when shatter even like, which is now kind of the, one of the lower forms of concentrates, yeah. you know, like it's, oh, that's the average every day. I remember when that was yeah. new and it was like, oh my God, this is so amazing um, to see those progressions. And you guys also have um, some patents, right? On, on the yep. extraction process. Could, could you explain, explain some of those patents? Yep. Yep. And this speaks a little bit too, as well, the relationship between myself and Brad, for example, you know, so I came in with, again, that, that business skill set. I led the development of the Guild brand. So everything you see as like a, a consumer touching kind of the presentation layer, so to speak, of the brand, the packaging, the design, everything was kind of a largely my doing, the, the, the part of the business that I led. Whereas Brad really, again, led on the innovation, on the extraction side of it. He's, again, is the, he's the artisan, really. Um, and so he, at that time, when I you know, met him, was actively just you know, head down writing patents for a lot of the um, extraction methods that he, that, that he pioneered, right? And the main one is really THCA. That's one of the kind of the Guild signature products that we've come to be known for. Now, it's not to say that he was the only one in the globe that had come up with THCA, but he was one of the first to really develop the tech and to popularize it, and especially here in the California market, which tends to influence things on a national and global level. So the first kind of key product that was brought to market was this THCA powder and then THCA crystalline. And for those that are familiar with that, you know, THCA powder, and, and this speaks to the patents, right? There's two patents. One of them is mechanical separation when you have your crude extract and then you mechanically separate out the compounds, in this case, the cannabinoids from the terpenes. On one end, you end up with THCA powder. On the other end, high terpene extract. So that THCA powder was one of the key products that we innovated and brought to market on a consumer level. And that's, you know, usually around 95 to 97% pure THCA powder. It has like a Parmesan cheese style consistency and appearance. And that's the first patent that kind of creates that output. The second patent is where you take that powder and you recrystallize it into an, and, and you isolate it. Essentially, it turns into 99.99% uh, pure THCA isolate. And that's the crystalline. And that's, the, I think, the product that really um, sent some shockwaves in the industry because, you know, first and foremost, it kind of looks like meth. And so when we first brought it to market, people are like, holy cow, like, what is that? And then also, you know, if, if you recall, you know, at the time it was this kind of race at the top who can create the purest and most potent extract. And people were just coming up with, you know, as we know, from 70% to 80% to 90%. And then here we come out with a basically 100%. It's 99.999% pure. And just boom, right there, we kind of won that race at the top and released this crystalline and just the potency of it, the purity of it, the appearance of it. Just a lot of people lost their shit when that came to market. We instantly developed a, you know, a rabid fan base of consumers that, you know, really those backpack kind of quintessential dabbers that love that product. So anyway, bringing it back to your question, the patents then are around that initial isolation of THCA or the separation of it, I should say. The second patent is then the isolation of it and recrystallization of it into crystalline. But then on the other side, again, you get this high terpene extract. 
that then that's what we use to then bring the opposite of an isolate, a really full spectrum, high terpene, super flavorful, super aromatic concentrate. So at the time when you would be getting, you know, products that, you know, hydrocarbon that weren't really purged well, that, you know, smelled like solvents that kind of were mm -hmm. harsh on the throat, we were bringing a really pure solvent free because we, you know, we were able to purge all the solvents and really get the full kind of a, terpene and cannabinoid profile out of that end product and then make you know more of the standard kind of concentrates that you see now today things like live resin and batter and butter and uh shatter and whatnot and people really love those that wanted to optimize for flavor and aromatics and the full sensory experience with concentrates whereas on the other end people that wanted that hard hitting kind of isolate like our like our diamonds um people love that as well and that's i think what really put guild on the map and kind of popularized this in the market yeah, I remember some of those first pics. And I think I remember that's the first time I seen your guys' brand, maybe like High Times or somebody sharing a photo on fucking even Facebook or something like that. Not even Instagram, maybe like Facebook. I saw <clears throat> you start seeing the, the THCA diamonds and just be, yeah, being like, what is that? And it looks obviously you get the right photo. It looks gorgeous. And then you try it and you're like, yeah, that's uh, that's gas. That's gasoline on fire right there, man. That that does the trick. Yeah. Um, but it, but it's also interesting too of even like hearing that you know and i'm thinking about that journey of when concentrates first came out and it was to get for a second it was like the color and the texture was what people were looking at and then all of a sudden it was the potency and it wasn't just like you know the uneducated consumer demographic was looking at thc and everyone was looking at flavor it was like everybody was looking at potency and yeah. then and it was funny because it seemed when that time was like, you know, you had diamonds and mm -hmm. sauce. A lot of people don't really care about the sauce as much. They wanted the diamonds, but the HTE or the sauce, like now there's HTE carts. People are dabbing straight HTE. It's become normalized because you said, you know, the full spectrum aspect, but also that flavor. <laughs> um, so it's, I'm just curious from your perspective of watching that progression, like how unique has it been to watch just the consumer demographic kind of chase product type potency and then now back to flavor and and for you personally what what is your is it a happy balance of one or the other or, or are you more a flavor guy you more potency what what are, what are you personally yeah no totally i'm definitely more of the flavor and aromatics guy you know i like to always um i like to often look at the analogy with with wine uh, wine is something that I've, I've loved and collected my whole life and wine has gone through a similar kind of arc you know for for those that are familiar with the with the wine industry particularly the california wine industry there's a fav there's a famous wine critic robert parker that um that started to popularize a style of wine that was higher alcohol and that was just a more harder hitting type of cabernet for example than like a french cabernet or bordeaux blend that tend to be a little bit more earth earthy lower alcohol more terroir driven right so you know this kind of thing emerged in wine like the parker palette that wanted more of the would be the equivalent of like a more a higher potency type um cannabis and so but but then as that industry evolved you saw the pendulum swing back to the more terroir driven that you're going for less alcohol and what you're getting in lieu of that is more flavor more aromatics and more of the terroir i personally and and that's kind of what where, where i really that, that's the sweet spot that i love to be in and i personally believe that that's the direction the cannabis industry is headed in terms of as it's further matured and articulated on the connoisseurship level 
and we see terroirs develop and a connoisseurship around around a sense of terroir. And we look at places like the Emerald Triangle and start to map out, which is actively happening right now, as I'm sure many of us are aware, so that we can now start to get a higher level of, of kind of a sensory experience and analysis and connoisseurship, where we're not just optimizing for potency, which as we know, the end result today is a lot of hot dog water with flavor, right? It's to me the equivalent of like getting like malt liquor, just give me your strongest malt liquor at the lowest cost per milliliter of alcohol, right? <laughs> um, that's kind of where we're at in some ways. And look, there's nothing wrong with that. If people just want to get blitzed out at the lowest cost, then great. There, there's a use case, a legitimate use case for that. And just like in the alcohol world, there's, there's a lot of money and opportunity to be made there. But really, when you talk about connoisseurship, I think most people, especially probably your listeners, would agree that that connoisseurship is not hot dog water with flavor, right? Uh, we're not just looking for distillate um, and then add some terpenes and, and fake terpenes, you know, at that, right? Um, we're looking for something that's really going to not only have that full spectrum that you can enjoy, that you see with a lot of rosins or really high quality live resin, um, but then also as we see the market evolve with things like flour and this terroir that I'm talking about, I personally look forward to the day where you can really then open up a jar of weed or a concentrate and really start to analyze it on that level and go back. You can be like, wow, this is like high altitude, coastal, humble, and start to pick out, you know, regions and subregions and really speak on that level about it. I love what they're doing in the Gangier program to start to train people in that direction. I think we're just at the beginning of that arc. And I'm super excited about that first and foremost. And I tend to just believe that that's a, a lower potency type conversation and more around flavor, aromatics, and typicity of location. Oh man, I love that. And, and, you know, I, I, I'm not the biggest dabber, but I am definitely, you know, a connoisseur of, of the plant and the flower. Um, and, and, you know, associate that. I think anyone that's on that level, right, is preferring flower over, or, or flavor over potency. But, you know, on, on that topic, right, like the, the average consumer is buying based off THC and price, you know, and if that's what, again, like I, I feel very similarly to yourself, if, if that's what they want, I mean, who am I to scream in their face? You're wrong. You should be, you know, you won't catch me outside of McDonald's yelling at everyone in the drive-thru like, Hey, there's better burgers at another <laughs> spot. Right. Like they made their choice, whatever they can, they, they can, they're happy with it. I, I don't care. But you know, in this, in the realm of, of the consumer who might not be as educated, right. They, they might not even understand the differentiations between concentrate types and what is what is process what is filler what what actually has an impact on the potency or the flavor what are some of the things out there that you're seeing that you know could not necessarily dangerous in terms of safety but dangerous in terms of just like consumer miseducation right like crc is a topic that's that's popularly coming out we see people call like I see distillate pens with added live resin in it. They call them like live resin cartridges, but it's, you know, it's yeah. not technically that, right? It's like distillate with like, uh, you know, cannabis terp derived terpenes <clears throat> put back in. And, and I'm seeing a lot of like misrepresentation of what a product actually is on the product. So I'm just kind of curious your perspective of what that's doing to consumer education and, and, and what's maybe not what's right and wrong, but just your thoughts on kind of that topic of making sure products are labeled correctly and the consumer is educated if they so choose to care. Sure. 
Well, I think there's a couple things there. You know, one of them is kind of misinformation and truth in advertising, which doesn't necessarily have a safety issue associated with it. And the other one is like straight safety, right? And I think when it gets to a lot of the issues around safety, consumer health, things like that, or even get, you know, product getting into the hands of minor for those that really want it to be regulated, like let's say alcohol. Um, I think the non-regulated markets where the biggest problem is, right? Especially if we look at hemp, right? And we're looking at all the synthetic variants of, you know, of naturally occurring compounds, right? So you're looking at, again, a lot of the hemp products that we're very familiar with. A lot of that started with Delta 8, which, hey, I'm, I, I love Delta 8. But as we look at some of the other types of products that are out there uh, being, able, being sold in uh, online or at gas stations or at um, head shops, a lot of that stuff is just has no regulation whatsoever. So not only are you getting, or at least it's very little regulated in some cases. Um, so in some cases you're getting product that's just not tested at all. So looking at things like, um, like contaminants and pesticides and things that you would try to make sure doesn't come from the biomass, but then also then as you're synthesizing it and you're, and you're looking at additives, we know we had kind of the vitamin E issue with the acetate and the issues that that has. So you have a lot of different issues there from contaminants in the biomass to the actual synthesis of cannabinoids that could lead to outcomes that we don't have not fully studied yet and that could be hazardous to some people to then additives and fillers and cutting agents and and terpenes and whatnot that are not natural or things like again like vitamin e and then all of those combined that can have serious health um, issues and safety issues for consumers. And look, I'm not the one that's going to necessarily be sitting here going like, well, let's police all that shit. But at the end of the day, if we want cannabis to be regulated and we want society to view cannabis as a safe product and we want to see further legalization and the product interwoven into the fabric of society, we can't expect it to be just kind of wild, wild west products out there that are hurting people, that are genuinely hurting people. Another facet of that is things like people just going and buying a thousand milligram freaking chocolate bar with no warnings or no nothing at some kind of black, uh, you know, maybe like a legacy market store or again, like a gas station and then all of a sudden um they have a hospitalization kind of moment you know we know they're not going to die but that's creating a negative impression on cannabis that's perpetuating the stigma so as much as i don't like the idea of getting more regulation and more law enforcement involved i'm at the same time i believe that um that we need to create safe products so that consumers at large and government at large and society at large can feel safe and secure about cannabis being interwoven into all facets of our society. And I personally want to be able to consume cannabis at my favorite music festival. I want to be able to consume it at a ballpark. I want to go to a museum or a movie theater and be able to consume cannabis in a beverage or an edible. And we're just not going to get there if there's health hazards along the way. So in that regard, I, I kind of do think that we need to do something about uh, this unregulated side of the market. On the regulated side, and I think what you're kind of mainly asking for there is when you get things like, um, right, like a, like a live resin cartridge that's really, you know, that's really Delta 9 with some added terpenes or maybe a little high terpene extract in it. And, you know, and that's, and that's, you know, it's, it's, it's patently just false, right? At the end of the day, there is a lot of false advertising there where people are calling products full spectrum. They're calling them live resin. They're calling them sauce. 
And at the end of the day, you're just getting Delta 9, you're getting that distillate with some flavoring, whether that's good flavoring or not, like cannabis derived or botanical or whatever it may be. Regardless of what that is, you're not really getting what what is being uh, uh, um, sold to you, right? And so now I don't think there's as much health and safety issues with that as it is, is just muddying the water and making it harder for us to go down this further refinement of uh, the, the connoisseur palette that we're talking about. And so I think it'll be interesting to see that how do we try to control the education around that so that there's truth in advertising. So if I'm selling you something that says full spectrum, live resin, um, that it's actually going to be that product and it's not going to be something that's kind of masked under that marketing cloak. Um, and I think that number one, that's just going to be it's it's just a better practice, just so that consumers get what you know they're they're getting what they ask for. There's truth in advertising there, um, and I just think like secondarily, it's gonna again, it's gonna further develop and refine the educational and connoisseurship process in our industry, so that we can mature as an industry and really start to know that hey, if I'm buying this product, is like what you see is what you get. And I'm able to kind of wrap my head around that and analyze it like you would in other consumer industries, be it wine, coffee, chocolate, tea, uh, craft beer. Um, again, I'm really looking forward to that day. Yeah, likewise. And I like what you said, you know, it's not not necessarily about speaking about policing it higher, right? Because I think most of us that come from cannabis, it's not looking yeah. for more regulation or, or more right. policing or snitching on someone or you know, looking for people to get, you know, slapped with fines. We're all try trying to, we're, we're moving past those days. We're trying to stay away from that. But there is this, you know, in, in all the markets that, like, like you said, you know, it's, it's untruthful in advertising. A lot of things are are marketed <clears throat> as something that they're not. And yeah. it's, it's, I don't know, it's, it's very just disappointing. And I, I don't know, you know, for me, I, I don't know, do you have any thoughts on like what, what the idea of the progression is other than just like wishing that people would, would not, follow that practice, right? Because I clearly people are doing it. Hey, this is a cool buzzword. I'll sell more units if I slap this on there. And it's kind of right. I, I put a little bit of HT in there. So it's kind of sauce or kind of live ready. You know, it's not quite not 100% not, but it is not what is being marketed. And it's clearly a dollar play. But do you have any thoughts in terms of like solutions of, of how we can curb that? Or is it kind of just a collective as an industry to, to, to educate to the consumers and, and help Put, put our faith in these stores and bud tenders mm -hmm. that they'll be able to identify and communicate that. Yeah, look, I think it's a number of things. I mean, I think primarily this is a symptom of just the immature nature of our industry, right? That we're, it's a very nascent industry. And I say that, you know, very clearly, obviously this industry goes back decades. So I'm really referring to the regulated market, right? The, the new kind of regulated recreational market that, that is that's been emerging the, the last few years. It's very early stages. And so these are just the growing pains that we're experiencing. I think a lot of, um, you know, a lot of our friends and peers in the industry right now are really struggling with a lot of the growing pains that, that, that we're all feeling there that, you know, we've implemented regulatory frameworks that, that, that have just proven not to work. There is a refinement process. We see you know, earlier markets like like Colorado, for example, where you know they're starting to iron out some of those kinks. We're looking at newer markets like New York that right out of the gate seems to be going out, you know, out with a bad regulatory framework uh, in some ways. And so I guess, you know, part of my answer is that over time, a lot of these issues will be sorted out as um, the regulatory bodies better understand the products that they're dealing with. I think that's one key problem is that our lawmakers and our policymakers 
don't know what they're doing, right? They're, they're, they're creating rules that they don't really fully understand. And they're looking to us and be like, are these rules right? And we're like, no, these rules aren't correct. And the process, that iterative process isn't, isn't evolving fast enough, but I think it will evolve over time. So that's, I think one key thing, I think education is definitely, um, as we see um, more groups like the Gangier group or just whatever group it may be, that's really trying to further develop um, uh, the educational side of it, the informational side of it. We see more online platforms that facilitate that online and offline. Um, I think we're very, very early stage in that kind of educational framework, that connoisseurship framework that's also gonna help sort out some of this misinformation and lastly, you know, I, I think that, you know, I'm kind of a laissez-faire kind of guy in many ways in terms of my beliefs and economics and whatnot. And I think that that if if we can get government intervention to stop kind of meddling in this industry and, and in some ways let the market sort out its own problems, then bad actors will be weeded out, right? Mm -hmm. Like at the end of the day, um, most industries show that if you're creating a high quality product and you're being authentic and genuine and transparent in what you're doing, the consumers reward those brands. And if the market is open and transparent and it, it's not getting monkeyed around by regulatory bodies, then um, then it, it just leaves little room for bad actors and bad operators to continue to propagate kind of bad products. And I think we're seeing that increasingly and we're seeing that in things like um, like the can uh, we're seeing that in other industries um, where here, sorry, I'm, I'm just losing the screen here. Okay, sorry. Um, so we're seeing that in other industries like like pharma or fast food, that the more time that goes by, a spotlight's being shed on these industries where they can't hide some of their um, some of their wrongdoings um, as much as they were in, in the past. And I think cannabis will evolve in a similar way. Yeah, yeah, I, I I love that I love that outlook because I think it is important to understand mm -hmm. that we are in a a very infant side of the the regulated market and and from the consumer demographics even the people that work in the industry the education is 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 not quite there but it's like it's not surprising right the 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 transference and the accessibility of this information has not been around very long yeah. Um, on on the thoughts of like progression, obviously you guys have been on the on the side of a lot of the progressions of concentrates. Where do you kind of see that the the concentrate and extraction category going next? Well, what do you think is the next evolution of that? Well, look at the end of the day, if you look at just the this the retail shelf as a whole, right? You have your flour products, right? Flour and pre rolls. And then there's everything else, right? That's basically a manufactured good, right? Whether it's a concentrate, a cartridge, or any of the other products that are manufactured, right? So at the end of the day, I like to look at it as manufacturing first and foremost. Like, like you're at, at the end of the day, you're you're going through this extraction, you're using this oil for lack of a, you know, to use a broad word. And now how are you purposing that oil? How are you creating ingredients? that then could go into a variety of manufactured goods, um, how can it can go into concentrates and cartridges. So at the end of the day, um, as we see in every market, manufactured goods over time are taking more and more and more market share. Where eventually, I believe that true flour and pre-rolls, just unadulterated flour in whatever format, is going to be a very small percentage of the total pie of products sold on a retail shelf. 
And I believe that because I see products like beverages, for example, which today the data shows that they're like one to 2% of total market sales. But that again is a function of the, of the nascent nature of our market, right? If you look at a, a, a future, whether it's five, 10, 15, 20 years out, where, and you know, and, and I hate to kind of keep, keep creating parallels with alcohol, but I think it's a useful analogy that like, as I mentioned, you know, if you look at alcohol and how it's interwoven into the whole fabric of society, where you can get it at a ballpark and a movie theater, and you can get it at a museum and you can get it at a concert and you can just really, alcohol's everywhere, right? At a restaurant, at a supermarket, at a wine bar, wherever it is. And then you look at all the special occasions. People use alcohol for celebrating birthdays and anniversaries and weddings, right? I think cannabis has a place in all of those use cases, and it's already proving out to have that case. But what can be used that easily, right? Like people aren't gonna be firing up blunts at ballparks or in their museum or in a movie theater or maybe at a wedding. I mean, some people do, but you're gonna want more discrete versions of that. And I think beverages really are going to be a big category of the future. So as kind of, you know, as a company that started as extractors, right, to create you know, connoisseur concentrates, and then later we create. You know, we 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 uh, launch cartridges. That's great. I think that's an you know that that's an, that will continue to be an important couple categories in the industry. But I think as we now formulate and look at in creating ingredients and formulas that then that then can be uh, used toward the creation of all these novel products and all these different form factors so that people from all walks of life and every facet of society, even things like travel and tourism and yoga classes, like you name it, there's just so many different use cases that I think we haven't yet seen all the range of products that are gonna satisfy those use cases. And I personally believe that on a percentage basis, the majority of manufactured products are going to be serving those use cases, mm -hmm. not flour or pre-rolls or even things like a concentrate. I think that's collectively, those would be 30% or less of total revenue in our industry. I'm going to, that's going to be one of the strongest, strongest things I take away from this interview personally is just e even that, that thought process, right. Of, of putting anything, not flour in the manufactured good. Cause I, I, I agree with you and believe that. And, uh, that's just, that's one of those things. Every, every time I've interviewed, there's always like certain takeaways I get that I'll be like, fuck, now I'm going to be noodling on. That's going to keep coming back to me for weeks. That one might stick around a little bit longer. But just thinking about that manufactured good category and the potential growth of that, like you said, not just concentrates, not just vape cartridges, edibles, uh, 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 beverages, all of that kind of lumped into because obviously it has the same source material. So that, that, that's a. Uh, Man, dang. Now, now you got me thinking, man, the wheels are spinning. <laughs> um, uh, what, what else? What is what does Guild have on the horizon for the rest of uh, for 2022 and, and early 23, man? Yeah, well, look, I mean, as you know, we're, we're just solely in California at this time. And for anyone who's in the market right now knows how just crazy and turbulent it is, not only within cannabis, but nationally and globally, where we're in tough times right now. So I think for most of us, everyone's just kind of in this like survival mode, right? Like just keep your head in the game, keep your products on shelves, uh, don't grow too fast, just, just slow and steady is kind of the game right now. And look, I mean, a lot of economists right now are predicting that, that this 
that this recession that we're either in or entering into is going to last another six to 18 months. So, so frankly, as far as we're concerned and anybody should be concerned right now, if you're operating in legal cannabis, you should be going slow and steady with your head down and conserving cash. Uh, I would love to kind of share broad, big visions and dreams, but, but, but right now that I think is the mandate for everyone. Like, like, like keep it cool uh, for, for the time being. But if we're looking a little bit beyond that, you know, we're looking toward the future on a couple different levels. You know, one thing with our patents, we're starting to do multi-state licensing with our patents um, as operators and markets are coming online, New York, New Jersey, wherever it may be. Um, our patents have a lot of uh, benefit and applicability uh, toward doing some of the things that, that we've been talking about here today. Um, um, we think that they're very, it's very powerful technology for those who really know how to apply that tech in their market. And one quick thing I'll say about that before we go is that for people that want to start creating consistent replicable products and want standardization across their product line and looking at that manufacturing model that I'm talking about, that's where I think our patents really come into play and how you create uh, manufactured ingredients, so to speak. And again, you can have your connoisseur of concentrates. Guild will always stand for that as a consumer brand. But if you're looking at behind the scenes, the engine that drives some of that and has broader application, um, it is the manufacturing of ingredients that could be used toward creating all these other products and doing it at scale. Um, through replicability and standardization so that you can start to get that same product in California that you'll get in New York, that you'll get in Pennsylvania or Florida. And that's ultimately how we see all other consumer packaged goods brands that operate nationally or globally. They have to have that replicability. And I think that our IP is really well suited uh, to creating that for especially groups like MSOs that want to go kind of multi-state. So that's kind of one end of our business that a lot of people don't know about that's a little bit more behind the scenes. And it's, it's, it's powering some of these larger operators to be able to create more scalable, replicable, standardized manufactured products. But then there's always the guild that 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 we all that that we personally love internally and that will be those connoisseur products that will bear the guild name and so there's those two tracks that will continue into the future um and we just hope to do more uh, innovation on on both tracks and see where that heads us but we're keeping our eye on national and global markets we're eagerly looking for the day i think like many of us when california can start to export and we can leverage that California brand and that appellation for marketing purposes where people can get like, just like again with Napa wines, where you can get that California legacy concentrate or flower or pre-roll or whatever it is that you're making and say that it's true to the best growing region in the world. Uh, that is the market leader in the world as far as the culture and the influence is concerned. So we're moving in that direction. But the first order of business is to survive our, our market, what seems to be a market collapse and a broader kind of national and global recession. Uh, man, uh, that's inspiring. Another one that's inspiring, another inspiring takeaway of just having, make it, you know, building that brand in the singular market and not looking to scale that, but scale the engine behind it and that business model and the app, business applications that what you guys have built have. That's uh, <clears throat> The, the, yeah, the business started me, man. That's that's sending the tentacles going. So, well, Claudio, I really appreciate you hopping on here, man. I like, you mm -hmm. know, I, I try and keep these at a certain time frame. I feel like you and I could probably keep talking for the next hour, man. Uh, and I'd just be, I'd be all for, for selfish uh, learning. Um, but for people out there that want to learn more, guildextracts.com, anything else you want to plug before I get you up out of here? 
Nope, just check us out on Instagram, guild underscore extracts underscore, you know, one of 50 Instagram handles that we, we, we've had to, uh, that's a whole nother topic is social media and how you can have longevity there. But follow us on Instagram, guildextracts.com is our URL. Uh, feel free to reach out, you know, Brad at Guild Extracts if you really want to, you know, get to know the guy behind a lot of the great products that I've talked about and Claudio at guildextracts.com uh, for some of the other stuff that we've talked about. So, uh, yeah, just happy to keep going here in this industry. Fire. Awesome. Well, Claudio, really appreciate your time. Thank you for everyone tuning in out there. This is the North America Weed Tour podcast. I think we have one more episode today and then we will see you guys next week with more content. Thanks for tuning in. Awesome. Thanks, guys.